This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Now, I've never been to a U2 concert, but I hear that it's absolutely electrifying. See, of course, you've got that ethereal soundscape with the, uh, punctuated by the pulsating electric guitar that is signature to U2. And the center of it all, though, is this man, Bono, passionate, full of energy. He's enthralling. You watch him, and you lean in, and you've got to know, what is making him so passionate? And you kind of want to be like it. Well, David is like the ancient Israel version of Bono in that regard. (laughs) Or we might say Bono is the modern Irish version of of David for that same passion. And you can just imagine that steady building crescendo, the intro into where the streets have no name, and about a minute in, instead of Bono entering in, it's David, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Psalm 103 begins with passionate intensity exploding from the start. It's expressive, even emotional. He uses the word soul, my life, the deep innermost part of of who I am. And he says, all that is within me, no remainder, holding nothing back. Everything that I am and all that I have, everything that makes me me, I orient it and direct it in praise to God. Do you know someone like that? Are you like that? Do you want to be like that? What does David know that we don't know? What has he experienced that that we haven't experienced that makes him so passionate? What is his inspiration? And could we be inspired by the same thing? Well, the answer to what is his inspiration is that David has had an encounter with the living God that was so powerful and so transformational that he has to write a song about it, extolling the wonders of this God who has met with him. Psalm 103 is a song of praise about the very heart of God, his nature, who he is, his essence. Uh, In fact, Psalm 103 is is one of those places, it's one of my go-tos in the Bible when I'm getting confused about who God is. God, I, I need you to tell me who you are again, feeling like you're mad at me or at least perpetually disappointed in me. And I find myself in Psalm 103 where he's saying, here I am. This is my gospel in a psalm. And when I come to Psalm 103, I find the sin-forgiving, promise-fulfilling, covenant-keeping God who draws near to those who humble themselves before Him. Typical of a song of praise, this psalm is full of descriptions of God, who He is, what He does. It's like when you go to a buffet uh, and you're excited what's there to eat, but you show up and there's just one or two scraggly pieces left. Or the opposite, which is what you want, you show up and you find out every section is full and overflowing with food fresh from the kitchen and you, you have your pick. Psalm 103 is a buffet full and overflowing of descriptions about God fresh from the kitchen. So, for example, turn to verse 2. Let's read for a little bit. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Now, what if we were to go back to those verses 
and, and isolate out just the verbs, we create a pretty compelling list of who God is and what He does. Listen, He forgives, heals, redeems, crowns, satisfies, and works justice. That sounds like a God I want to follow. That sounds a lot like Jesus, because Psalm 103, it's the gospel, it's the good news of Jesus Christ in a psalm. Where is He? Well, he, He's everywhere. Again, let's go back to that list, verse 3. This is a perfect description of Jesus' mission. He forgives all your iniquity. Jesus made it very clear, the reason I have come to the earth is to die, and the reason I'm dying is to forgive sin. That was his chief purpose in coming. He heals all your diseases. You know that not only was Jesus a teacher of righteousness, but he went about doing good and healing all who were sick or oppressed by the devil. He's a healer who redeems your life from the pit. By his death and resurrection, Jesus has saved us from eternal death, from the pit and the grave. He has redeemed us from that fate that would have been ours apart from his work, eternal death. And instead, he crowns us with eternal life. He says, I want to put upon you my glory. I want you to share with me in my inheritance. I want you even to reign with me in my kingdom. He crowns us, and he satisfies us with his good. Oh, this is a perfect description of what Jesus came to do. And of course, because the God of the gospel is the same God that David met with. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the sin-forgiving, promise-fulfilling, covenant-keeping God who delights to draw near to those who humble themselves before Him. If we keep going through the psalm, the next section is verse 8 through verse 13. This section is a beautiful passage further illuminating the heart of God, but particularly focusing in on this forgiveness and the mercy of God towards those who are in covenant relationship with Him. We'll come back to this section in a little bit. We'll spend more, most of our time there. Um, the next section, verses 14 to 18, is a quick contrast with the other party in the relationship, uh, i.e., us, where it says, we are weak, finite, mortal. And yet God, look in verse 17, His steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. Finally, the song concludes with a passionate and explosive end, just as it began. It's the end, kind of like the end of the fireworks, when they just really go at it, boom, 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 boom. It's a call to praise with cosmic proportion. David is inviting angels and the armies of heaven and all the realms of God's extensive kingdom he inviting them to join in with a song of praise. And then the very final note, David ends where he began. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Now at the center of the swirl of all of these descriptions, there's one word that stands out above all the rest as the most important, the most prominent. It occurs four times, so more than any other word in this psalm, but it also conceptually, it's at the center. It holds together all of the other words and concepts like the sun at the center of the solar system. Notice I didn't say like the one ring that rules them all, because apparently we're only allowed one Tolkien illustration every year. Okay, but it's at the center, and it's the word hesed, which is translated steadfast love. In other translations, it might be mercy 
loving kindness, or simply love. But the truth is it's difficult to translate because there's no singular term in English that can fully embody and encompass all that this word means in the Hebrew. So instead, we need a field of words to help us enter into the meaning of of His steadfast love. So, on the one hand, it's things like mercy and kindness, which we typically associate with our word of love, but then it also has to do with duty, obligation, and fulfilling a promise. That's why that steadfast adjective is added. It's steadfast love. So, as, as we pick apart and understand this word has said, the steadfast love of the Lord, today we're primarily going to understand what I think are its chief two components. First, the forgiveness of His steadfast love, and then the faithfulness, His covenant-keeping faithfulness. So, first, the forgiveness of God. Look at verse 8 now. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. There it is, Hesed. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. Those of you raising children know that whether it's with little children or, or even with teenagers, though it's true that you see all the wrong, everything that's wrong, everything that needs to be fixed and corrected, you also know that you can't hound them about it. You can't always be on their case, or else they'll grow weary and discouraged. The Lord knows this too. Verse 10, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. He doesn't throw the book at us. We don't get what we deserve. Instead, He shows forgiveness and compassion. So, I, I know this kind of love from personal experience. I experienced it uh, nine years ago in a very dramatic way. So, this was nine years ago. I was youth pastor here at Church of the Resurrection, and I took about a dozen students to a camping trip uh, to Starved Rock to, uh, together with my wife, Julie. And as we were on the hike, there were canyons going everywhere. If you've been there, it's, it's beautiful. It's stunning. It's the singular, single, like, topographical place of interest in the whole state of Illinois. And there are signs everywhere that say, stay on the trail, don't go off, falling hazard. Uh, but I, I jumped down, and I'm walking through the canyon with, with Juan and Jake, uh, to, to the seniors who were there, and, and Julie said, hey, Brett, come back on the trail. I said, we're just going to follow this canyon a little bit, see where it goes. We'll, we'll, we'll go down, and we'll, we'll meet you at the visitor center. She said, no, don't do that. And I said, no, we're going to go. She said, Brett, if you were with your brothers, it would be one thing, but you are the youth pastor. You are the adult in charge. You're about to do something dangerous and illegal with two of your students. Don't do this. And in my famous last words, I said, don't worry, it'll be fine. (laughs) As we're going down the canyon, we get to a place where we we can't go any further because there's a steep drop. And so I said to the other two guys, you stay here, I'll shimmy down and see if we can keep going. Well, shimmy uh, means 20-foot drop where I slice my hand on the rock on the way down and have a really deep cut when I hit bottom. Oops. That night back at camp, I'm looking at it, and I'm telling Julie, okay, that was a lot of blood. This is really deep. I think I need to go to the ER. So now imagine Chris Easley, senior in high school. He's the one driving the youth pastor to the ER, all right? It's supposed to be the other way around. I did everything wrong, and it gets worse. So we get back home the next day, and I'm not feeling well. Long story short, I'm checked into CDH for three days, fighting off a pretty rigorous infection. And while I'm sitting there in the hospital bed, Kevin and Karen Miller walk in. 
And I'm, I'm so excited to see them because I love them, but I'm also terrified because Karen is my boss. And this would be the perfect time to fire an idiot who does something like I did. That would have been what I deserved. Instead, she sits down at the edge of the bed. We start talking. She asked me to tell her what happened. And as I, as I tell her, I'm genuinely weeping. I'm, I did everything wrong. I'm so sorry. She takes it in, puts her hand on me, prays for me. She prays forgiveness. She doesn't fire me. She says, I love you, Brett. I'm glad you're doing well. Now, what have we learned from this? <laughs> Always do what Julie says. Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. I heard it in the front row before I said it. You, you got it, Ken. There's more to the story. So, workman's comp paid for all of the medical bills, which is ridiculous because workman's comp was created for steel workers who fall off skyscrapers or smash their fingers under 3,000-pound bar bars of iron, not for idiot youth pastors. I took the money, by the way, in case you're wondering. <laughs> Felt like a chump. And I just said, okay, this is what it means to receive mercy. That was none of that. None of that was what I deserved. And Karen modeled for me the steadfast, sin-forgiving, promise-fulfilling love of God. And, and just by the way, that's how it works. If you're wondering, why am I here on the planet? Why do I exist? What's my purpose and meaning in life? Well, now you know. It's to receive that kind of love from God and do everything that you can to give that love to others in the name of God. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Now, the verses that follow, verses 11 through 14, are some of the most breathtaking verses in all the Psalter. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions, our sins, from us. They'll have nothing to do with us after He's through with them. As a father shows compassion or, or pity on his children, so the Lord pities those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Like I said, it's the gospel in a psalm. But you wonder, don't you, how did David know all of that? How did David know all of this about the heart of God and the love of God when he's writing a thousand years before Jesus showed up to proclaim it and ultimately to give his life for this love? How did he know it a thousand years before St. John wrote, God is love? Well, to answer that, let's jump backwards to verse 7. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. At first, this verse feels a little bit like an anomaly. This is not a historical psalm, right? Other psalms are recounting pieces of the story from Israel. Here, there's no other reference in the rest of the psalm to Israel or Moses or anybody else, so it kind of sticks out. What's it doing here? Well, as we keep reading into verse 8, now it starts to make more sense. The Lord, Yahweh, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Ah, okay. You see, that's a direct quote 
from Exodus 34, which is the story of Moses and God up on Mount Sinai where Moses says, show me your glory. And God comes before him, and, and it's lightning and thunder, the mountain quaking, and the glory and the presence of God goes before Moses. And at the height of this scene, God opens himself to Moses and reveals to him his holy name, who he is. He says, I'm Yahweh. I am Yahweh. And then he quotes what we just read, I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. This is who God is. He reveals it at this key climactic moment in the story between Israel and him. And every Israelite would have known that verse and would have known, oh, that's the name of God. That's who He is. They would have known those words and those verses and that cadence in the same way that when, when you hear a Beatles song when you're watching a movie or something, you're like, oh, I, I know that song. That's why movies and commercials, they have really familiar songs in the background because then you, you sit up and pay attention. Or like with, uh, you remember, for many, many years, United Airlines, every commercial played the same uh, little riff from Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. So that every time you heard it, you think, I want to go buy a plane ticket from United Airlines. Why, why is that? So when a musician or an artist or a writer quotes an older, well-known piece, they're saying, hey, there's, there's a connection between that and what I'm doing right here. I like what they did. I'm inspired by that. And actually, as you're listening to my song or reading, reading my poem, I want you to have that in mind as well. So David's doing the same thing. He's saying there's a connection here between that story on the mountain and my song. He's signaling to us what is the source and of his inspiration. So how did David know so much about the heart of God? Well, he sees it in the Scripture that he's reading. Why is David so passionate? Well, because he's had an encounter with the living God as he's meditating on Torah. This becomes all the more clear when we remember the part of the story that comes right before it. Right, so the scene on the mountain, that's the climax. If you're making a movie, that would be the scene where you pull out all the stops, right? No one had come closer to the glory of God up until that point, save for Adam and Eve in, in the garden before they fell. So this is the climax, but right before it, remember Israel, they're slaves in Egypt. But because God had made a promise to Abraham, He said, I'm bound to you by this promise, which means I, I will do good to you. I'm, I'm bound to you forever, no matter what. Therefore, I'm coming to get you. So He comes to Egypt, and through the greatest display of power the world had ever seen upon Egypt, culminating in the parting of the Red Sea and Israel coming out, He delivers His people. Nothing like that had ever happened before. It's the greatest miracle in the Old Testament. And three days later, the Israelites are in the wilderness. They're grumbling. They're basically cursing God and saying, He doesn't care about us. Three days later, three months later, the first time that Moses is up on the mountain, they're down in the valley. They say, Where, where's this Moses? He's forgotten about us. What do we do? Well, let's, let's make a golden calf and worship it. So they make this golden calf, they worship it, and they say, this is the God who took us out of Egypt. By the way, that's about the exact wrong thing that they could have done at that moment. The only equivalent that we could even imagine would be like if you're getting cheated on 
on the honeymoon. So how does God respond? Well, he's angry. He's hurt. How could he not be? If he didn't respond with anger, we would wonder, did he really care? But then notice the rest of the story. When he's talking with Moses and when Moses is interceding and when God gives the final verdict, his anger is, is not the lead factor. He lets go of his anger and instead chooses patience, compassion. He does not abandon Israel, but instead he forgives them when he had every right to destroy them. He said, no, I won't do that. No wonder David is writing with such passion. Who had ever seen a love like this when God had every right to abandon ship? He didn't. Which brings us to the second aspect of hesed. Not only his forgiveness, but now God's promise-fulfilling, covenant-keeping faithfulness. So let's talk about his faithfulness. Well, faithfulness implies that there's a relationship. A bond has been established, at the center of which is a promise. It's like God said, I made a promise that binds me to you forever, and it's a bond that I will never break on my end. We are free to walk away, and often that is what we do. But God's promise-fulfilling faithfulness means that He says, I'm never going to be the one to walk away. And every time you come back, I'll be here. And if you come back and humble yourself before me, I will not reject you. I will bring you back in. God's faithfulness means I'm not going anywhere. God's faithfulness means I will actively pursue your good. I will work for it. God's faithfulness means I will never do anything that brings you true and lasting harm. God's faithfulness means not only am I here and fighting on your behalf, but I'm also fighting for the relationship itself. Old Testament scholar Robin Rutledge said, covenant faithfulness will seek the continuation of the relationship even in the face of all that threatens it. So again, look at verse 17. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. In other words, I'm not letting go. I was reading recently the story, uh, reading again, it happened a few years ago, but of two young women who were hiking in the mountains of California. And in the middle of their hike, a 110-pound mountain lion jumped out, grabbed one of the young women, and began to haul her off. Her friend grabbed her legs and held on. She wasn't strong enough or able on her own to pull her friend away from the lion. All she could do was just hold on until help came. Well, eventually, others came, and they started throwing rocks at the lion, and eventually it gave up and went away. Afterward, both women were fine and recovered, and as the, women, the woman who did the holding on retold the story, she said, I, I couldn't think of anything to say except just over and over I said, I'm not letting go to her friend. I'm not letting go. That's faithfulness. Holding on in the face of any threat to the relationship, coming against any threat to the relationship. But what if the threat to the relationship 
is within the relationship. It's the other person. So imagine, same scenario, but, but imagine she's holding on and, and all of a sudden her friend turns into a lion, turns around and begins to attack her. At that point, most of us would let go. Not God. He says, I'm not letting go, even if it hurts me. I'm not letting go, even if it kills me. I'm not letting go, even if you kill me. I'm not going to let go of you. And even if to give you the very best means that I have to take on the very worst, I'm not letting go. In about 15 minutes, you're going to hear the words, Christ died for you. That's what this means. That no matter what the cost, I'm not letting go. If you noticed, this was also in our New Testament reading today from Colossians. Paul is writing, he says, you were once alienated and hostile in mind. So not just that you were far from God and had kind of forgotten about Him, but you were actually His enemies, antagonists against Him, doing evil deeds. But you, He has now reconciled, brought back in His body of flesh by His death. And isn't this beautiful, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. So if you're here this morning and, and you've also done about the worst thing you can do, then you need to know today, God is saying, well, I haven't given up on you yet. This is our God, forgiving and ever faithful. Do you want to know this love so deeply that it causes you to sing the way David sang? And by the way, David didn't just know about this love because he read it in the Scriptures. David also knew this love because he experienced it personally in his life as you were meant to as well. So how do we do that? How do we receive this steadfast love? Well, as we've said, it's about forgiveness and it's about faithfulness. So with forgiveness, first thing we do, the more deeply you confess your sin and know your sin and understand your sin, the more reason you will have to sing like David sang. So make it a habit regularly to speak to God, and I do mean out loud and not just during Lent. This is meant to be a regular habit for us as Christians, to speak out loud to God and admit your wrongs. That is, name the specific things that you, you've done wrong. Lord, I, I lost patience with Simon the other night. I, I yelled. I was a little rough. Please forgive me. But it also means that you, you look deeper at your character flaws and those things inwardly that you know are displeasing to the Lord. Lord, and you know, I am selfish. I'm ungrateful. It means that you look in towards the inner attitudes and your posture towards the Lord, towards others, towards everything, and you scour them to say, what is displeasing to you, O Lord? and you just speak it out loud. The more deeply you confess, the more deeply you will have a reason to sing about the sin-forgiving God. The second thing, we've talked about faithfulness, and we've said, well, that implies relationship. Like any other relationship, the ones that are most important to us are the ones that we put energy 
into. It's going to look different depending on your station of life and, and other demands that are on your life, but the question is this, are you putting energy into your relationship with God? The more he is at the center, the more you can say with David, all that is within me, the more energy you are putting towards this relationship, the more reason you are going to have to sing about the steadfast love of God. The more you'll be able to bring that love to the world around you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.